still might break this last part into two parts just to make the uploading easier, but I will post them at the same time so that you can watch them and you don't have to wait. Okay, so let's get right in. If you have not watched parts one or two yet, please go ahead and watch those now. I'll put the link in the description. Rampage to 
facilitating redeveloping the area and removing over 10,000 people, most of them poor and black, from their homes. The downtrodden, the people who have been removed from their homes without any notice or any care, they were feeling abandoned by the government and the people in power in San Francisco. They were feeling like nobody cared about them. And then, of course, enigmatic Jim Jones walks on the scene to show them that somebody does. Jones' massive following and loyal following eventually brought him to the attention of San Francisco's elite, especially the politicians of the city. They could see the amount of power and control he had over people, and they recognized how much they could use that to their own advantage. As politicians typically do, instead of seeing thousands of people that were influenced that they could help, they saw thousands of people that were influenced that they could use. Congressional powerhouse Philip Burton could feel his mouth watering when he looked at Jim Jones and his multiple loyal followers. He set up a meeting between Jones and his friend George Moscone, who was running for mayor. And within no time, Moscone's campaign headquarters was staffed and run by 200 temple members. Jim Jones even kindly arranged for buses of temple members and congregates to be bussed to polling locations so that they could cast their vote for George. Sometimes even more than once. Sometimes several times. Of course, the election would go in Moscone's favor, and he actually won the mayoral race by 4,000 votes. So it is widely believed and accepted that without the People's Temple and Jim Jones, he never would have won that election. Now, of course, helping to clinch the race for the new mayor of San Francisco gave Jim Jones an ego boost that was already feeding a ginormous ego, and he never let George forget the help he'd given him in San Francisco. George Moscone was a good man, and he really was what the city needed at that time, but Jim basically turned him into a puppet, and he ruined him like he did everybody that he came into contact with. He never let this guy forget that he owed him a debt. He never let him forget that he was only where he was because of the help of Jim Jones. George Moscone basically started his time in office with a weight on his shoulders that represented a deal made with the devil. He made a deal with the devil, and now he had to make good on it. Jones didn't feel like helping George win the race was enough of leverage on him, so he would actually like invite him to parties, get him drunk, hook him up with women, and then the next day he would call him and he'd say, hey, it was really great seeing you last night at this party, but by the way, that girl that you were with last night, she was actually underage, so... Essentially, I set you up and now I own you. In October of 1976, George Moscone named Jim Jones chairman of the San Francisco Housing Committee. And in typical Jim Jones fashion, Jim would start placing temple members in positions throughout the housing committee and kind of even in other forms of government too, you know, because he had connections now, he could get people in where he wasn't able to get people in before. So he was placing people strategically throughout the political structure of San Francisco. So he would have his finger on the pulse of everything that was happening. It's actually brilliant. No one even knew it was happening until it was too late. He became known as a man who could fix elections, especially among the Democrats. He was very popular and widely used. Harvey Milk was a big fan of Jim Jones. Big fan. He once sent him a letter saying, Our paths have crossed. They will stay crossed. It is a fight I will walk with you into. 
Later, he would tell a friend who mentioned she'd had a strange experience with People's Temple, make sure you're nice to the People's Temple. They're weird and they're dangerous, and you never want to be on their bad side. So it's pretty clear to me from that that he knew there was something off about these people, but he still publicly and privately supported Jim Jones and his followers. And Harvey Milk was a really impressive politician in his time as well. He did a lot for the community in San Francisco. So it's just crazy that these kinds of little tidbits, you don't ever really hear about Jim Jones, how popular he was among the political elite in San Francisco. Like nobody ever tells you this stuff. I don't know if these politicians actually liked Jim or respected Jim or if they feared him knowing his influence that he would either make or break them and their political careers were too important to kind of put personal feelings in front of professional ones. And as much as Jim loved his politicians, friends, letters, and sweet nothings whispered in his ear, he didn't want their private affection and attention. He wanted their public adoration. He needed everybody to know that Jim Jones was an important person. So he actually threw himself a banquet in his own name, threw it himself at People's Temple, and he like decked out the place with linen tablecloths and candles and a beautiful menu, and he invited all of San Francisco's elite, and they showed up. The DA was there, the ABA was there, the mayor was there, congressmen, lawyers, senators, everybody just filling up the People's Temple for their new buddy, Jim Jones. Now, Willie Brown was a political force in his own right. He was a very important person, especially in African-American history. Willie Brown would recover from his Jones fanboy status and eventually go on to serve as the first black mayor of San Francisco. He was San Francisco's mayor from 1996 to 2004, and he did a really good job his tenure was marked by a lot of good things for San Francisco, such as real estate development, um, city beautification. He was around when the whole dot-com era of San Francisco exploded, and you know San Francisco and the Silicon Valley area, they're very much into that kind of stuff. But he did a really good job. And for somebody to be such a huge Jones supporter, because he was one of the biggest Jim Jones supporters that have ever existed, even after Jim Jones started going downhill as far as his reputation, Willie Brown still supported him and spoke out for him. For him to go on to do so many good things and to become mayor after that, because I feel like that would have been political suicide at this point. You know, you're such a supporter of this guy and the stuff he ends up doing. But anyways, at the time, Willie Brown was an assemblyman in San Francisco. He introduced him like this. Let me present to you a combination of Martin King, Angela Davis, Albert Einstein and Chairman Mao, Jim Jones. Man, he was like kissing his ass hard. And with Jim Jones' ego being expanded to the point of no return, he truly now believes he can get away with anything. He has the power, the control, he has connections, he's somebody important, he's got the government behind him. He can do anything he wants, and he basically just starts using his entire congregation as like he starts to separate them from anybody important to them. He's very threatened by familial relationships. Any relationship that this person has that would be considered more important than the relationship they have with him, he has to put a stop to it. 
he begins to isolate members of the People's Temple away from their family, even if their family is actually a part of the People's Temple. This is the same thing an abusive spouse will do to you if you are with them, but they don't want you to be with anybody else. They'll start saying your family is mean to them so that your family isn't around because you don't want to be around your family when they're mean to your significant other. They'll start making things up that your family doesn't appreciate you. They don't love you as much as I do. I'm the only one who cares about you. I'm the only one who has the same interest as you do. It's very, very detrimental. And so many people fall for it. He wanted to be your only friend. He wanted to be your mother. He wanted to be your father. He wanted to be your brother. He wanted to be your sister. He wanted to be your lover. He wanted to be everything to these people. There were public humiliations and punishments, and these would get worse once he actually had them in Jonestown. But they started in San Francisco, and they started small, but it was still shocking the kind of stuff he got away with on American soil when he was a very like important politician in person in the city have you stand up and then verbally just berate you. He would tell you you were useless. He would tell you you were nothing. I don't understand why you're even here. There's no point for you. Just the typical verbally abusive kind of stuff that breaks people down. He would bring these people to tears. They'd be sobbing before he would walk down, wrap his arms around them and say, this was for your own good. Father loves you. Don't worry. You're okay. This is such textbook abuse that you would Watches. 
he would have boxing matches where he would literally put these on for entertainment where somebody who'd been doing something wrong would be put in the ring and then just be allowed to be beat on by multiple people over and over again. And, and no matter how much he fought back or how much he tried to hold his own, it would not end until Jim Jones said it was going to end. And Jim Jones didn't say it was going to end until the person was beaten to a bloody pulp on the floor, basically. He made one woman strip down naked in front of the entire congregation and basically make fun of her and tell her she was overweight. And then he made her go and put her entire body into a pool of ice until he told her she could get out. This is dangerous. This is starting to mess with people's bodies as well as their minds. There's a plethora of other horrendous acts that I cannot and will not repeat. If you want to look more into it, I will put some resources in the description box. So people were working all day signing over their paychecks to Jim Jones. At first, it started off with 20% of their paychecks. Eventually, that kept raising and raising and raising until they were just signing over their entire paychecks to him every week, every month. Everything they made went to him. They already signed over their homes to him, all their valuables, even sometimes their children. And he took everything from them. They worked all day. They went to meetings all night. They were getting like two, three, four hours of sleep a night, if that. In fact, it became like a fun competition within the temple to tell other people how long you've slept. And so they would be like, oh, I slept four hours last night. And you would be like, ha, gotcha, I slept two hours last night. And then somebody else would be like, I haven't slept in three days. And this was supposed to make you seem more loyal, more devoted to the cause. The less you slept, the better a temple member you were. It reminds me of the conversation that my husband and I have like every morning because Bella wakes up a lot at night. And you know he'll be like, I'm so tired in the morning. And I'll be like, you're tired? I'm sorry, were you up every single hour? I think I got three hours of sleep. And he was like, well, I heard you get up every single hour, and that woke me up. So I probably only got like two and a half hours of sleep. And I'd be like, well, come to think of it, I had to take a bathroom break, and then I got a drink of water. So I probably only got two hours of sleep. So we like are so exhausted and miserable. We compete with each other in the morning of who's more exhausted and miserable. On top of all this, now they're being beaten and humiliated. And you ask, why didn't they leave? Why didn't they leave? I know this is one of the main questions. Well, you have to understand now, a lot of people came to people's temple with nothing. And the only reason they had a roof over their heads or food in their stomachs or a job was because of Jim Jones. He wasn't just their preacher, he was their father. He was their employer. He'd given them a job, he'd given them a home. He was everything and he had everything and they had nothing. So if they left, there'd be nothing to go to. A lot of other people who had come in with property or money, they'd already signed that all over to Jim. So they would have nothing if they left. And it wasn't that bad yet. Now, for me and you, we obviously know it was that bad, right? But for these people who would have nothing if they leave, they're thinking, it's not really that bad. We can make it through this. It'll get better. They didn't have any money. They weren't sleeping. They weren't thinking straight. You would know if you've ever been sleep deprived, especially when it's a prolonged time period of being sleep deprived, your brain doesn't work correctly. You can barely function your body to move it and tell what to do, and your brain barely works. So Jim Jones is everything. He's their faith healer, their father, their savior in most cases, and he also has all their shit. San Francisco's going great for Jim, right? He's having a great time playing puppet master with the politicians, being wined and dined by everybody, but as all good things do, it came to an end. And this was a slow demise. It was slow, but it was steady. Because in 1972, the first piece of bad press would be released about the People's Temple. In 
ordained priest and religion editor for the San Francisco Examiner, Lester Kinsolving wrote a series of eight articles about abuse of power in people's temples. He ripped Jim Jones apart, basically citing unethical business practices, the way he treated people, that he was extremely money. He was especially upset and agitated about Jim Jones, who claimed he could raise the dead because he said he was taking advantage of people's religious beliefs. He even pointed out that he had like guards following him around, armed guards following him around all the time. Basically, Kim Solving, he spilled the tea on People's Temple. And People's Temple responded, of course, because even though Jim Jones couldn't send his followers over to Kim Solving's Twitter or Instagram account to verbally abuse and attack him, he could have them write millions of letters to the examiner's office, demanding them to retract the articles. Now, the examiner would post four of those articles, but they never posted the last eight. I think they did get a little bit of backlash from not only the People's Temple's followers, but also from Jim Jones's fancy new political friends. If you want to read all eight articles, I do have a link for that. I did read them all. They're well-written and entertaining. I enjoyed them, and I will put that link in the description box. In 1973, eight members would leave the fold, and this was the first group defection to ever happen to the People's Temple. They wrote a letter to Jim Jones citing their reasons for leaving. There was a group of eight young people who knew he was a hypocrite, that he preached equality, yet his inner circle was all white. And so they wrote him a letter pointing all of these contradictions and hypocrisies out. And they had good reasons, but it still bothers me because these people didn't have the balls to say to Jim, this is your fault, this is because of you, it all stems from you. They were still too afraid of him and maybe still believed in him a little too much to actually directly say that to him. They blamed his lieutenants, his inner circle, his committee for all the things that were happening that made them want to leave. They told him that even though he preached racial equality and socialism, that they didn't feel things were really going that way. Most of the people in his inner circle were white. I think there was one black person in his inner circle, so they were offended by that. Obviously, if you say that you view everybody the same, why does it seem like the majority of people that you trust and have around you are white, not black? Money talks just as much as outside of the temple walls. And if somebody would have an issue or they would say, hey, so-and-so gets to get away with this, why can't I? They would be responded to by saying, well, so-and-so brings in a lot of money, and when you bring in that much money, then you can do whatever you want to. They ended this extensive long letter, which I will also link in the description if you want to see it, but they ended the letter with, the eight of us believe in historical materialism. We feel that you came to the people giving them the greatest reason to live, the greatest reason to die, the greatest reason to fight, socialism. We have another name for it. However, you can't do it all. You can't move unless your followers realize the necessity to shape history themselves. This is, again, where the staff has failed. They are, to the most part, white, egotistical people maintaining a hierarchy. Not allowing you to take the reins and go ahead full steam. Holding you back, saying it's not time. Having to be effed. Degrading people, especially if they have a little knowledge about socialism. All this leads us to the conclusion that the staff is chicken shit. There is a point where you have to be cautious and compromise, yet there's a limit. We will not talk against people's temple to anyone because of you and a few innocent people who may be hurt. You're the one that showed us the way. You're the one that boldly challenged capitalism and put a vision in our hearts. You're the one that proved to us that nothing is impossible. 
this is exactly how we feel. Nothing is impossible. So once again, I recognize their bravery for leaving and for even saying anything to Jim because me, I would have just, I would have been out. I wouldn't have said anything. Nobody would have ever heard from me or seen me again. But they're still kissing his ass, right? They're still reinforcing his belief that he's right, he can do no wrong, he hasn't done anything wrong, and they're still allowing him to project all the things that he's done wrong onto everybody else. So after the eight members leave, the temple is a flutter with gossip, of course. Everybody's talking about it because they're bored and there's nothing else to talk about. And Jim's paranoia and anger and anxiety, they grow and grow and grow with every new whisper that he hears. He basically flipped out planning commission and said this is your fault first of all you should have seen this coming how did you not know that these people were feeling this way and that they were about to leave this is your fault you got to keep a better eye on people because from now on we're cracking down there's not going to be one thing that happens in this place without us knowing it's not magic change you thought history just made itself nah baby this ain't magic this this is the real thing
Miss Witherspoon would go on to lure a 10-year-old boy into doing something with him that he shouldn't have been doing. And instead of handing him over to the police and letting them take care of it, People's Temple wanted to handle it internally. Often these kinds of places do. This is a trademark of cults. They handle their own stuff internally, kind of like the military. So he was brought into a back room and he was tortured. I'm not going to say exactly what happened to him because once again, it's not something I want to repeat. We'll post a link if you're interested. But needless to say, the man was incapacitated for days, and he had to use a catheter for quite a while. I'm a big proponent of children's rights, and I detest anybody who hurts children, so I'm not really against what they did to Pedo Pete. But the fact is, this man should have been turned over to the authorities where he could have been taken off the streets. After they did this to him, they put him right back into the temple life. And I don't know if he went on to do anything again. I can only assume he did just because I know that somebody like this doesn't really get healed or get better, especially without therapy and medication and lots and lots of like watchful eyes. So it bothers me that they didn't turn him over to the police after they tortured him. Loyal Temple members were also punished for perceived wrongdoings. A woman named Lori Ephraim, who came to People's Temple really quiet, really meek, she was treated so badly by Jim Jones, and I don't know why. One day, during a normal, late-night, exhausting PC meeting, Jim Jones was going on and on about how the sexual demands that had you know, been put on him were getting to be too much, that it was just too much for one man satisfy all these women and for some reason he asked for everybody who was in the room to raise their hands if they'd slept with him so a lot of people in the room raised their hand right but not Lori because she hasn't been with Jim yet but most people thought that she had a crush on him and you know she wanted to be with him and he singled her out and he was like look at Lori she's been hitting on me for months she's coming on to me all the time I'm exhausted and he was like what do you think you have to offer me take your clothes off. So he made her take her clothes off, get completely naked in front of the whole planning committee. And he then simply said, if I had a list of people I didn't want to sleep with, you would be at the top of it. And then he made her sit there the entire rest of the meeting naked, just standing there naked. And the meeting went on for several more hours. A few days later, one of the inner circle would approach Lori and say, you know, sorry about that. Jim feels bad, but he really had to do it. Like, it's for your own good. And Lori was just like, no problem. It's okay. I understand. Even though a lot of people were appalled by the treatment of Lori, who was a really unproblematic person in the temple, they thought that Jim had the weight of the world on his shoulders, and if he had to blow off steam this way to make him feel better, it would make everybody's life better. And that was just her, her service to give to Jim. Every time he would pull a stunt like this and the stunts would get crazier and crazier, I really think he was just waiting for somebody to be like, enough, this has gone too far. Nobody ever did. He never stopped really began to believe, once again, that he could get away with anything, even murder. I think he began to believe his own lies, that he was truly God. The next story is one of those how the mighty have fallen stories. So in 1973, the LA Police Department had gotten a lot of reports of gay men hanging out in certain areas, trying to solicit other men for sex. So these specific areas were MacArthur Park and the West Lake Movie Theater. Both of these areas were about a little bit less than a mile from People's Temple in Los Angeles. Their Los Angeles branch, because they're incorporated now. 
The police department began sending plain-clothed police officers undercover to hang out in the park and the movie theater and see if they could catch somebody doing this. This was illegal. It was illegal then, it's still illegal now, and I guess it's a big deal then, especially. So they wanted to hang out and catch these people doing it. So one day, this undercover officer is just sitting in the balcony at the Westlake Movie Theater watching a movie, I think it was Dirty Harry, and a guy, like a single guy that's just standing over there kind of like beckons to him. And so the police officer gets up and walks into the bathroom, and this guy follows him. This man then proceeds to pull down his pants and participate in an act of self-love in front of the undercover police officers. So the man's obviously arrested, put in cuffs, brought to the police station, where he is then charged with lewd conduct. This man was Jim Jones. He's in a little bit of hot water, right? But he's not worried. He's not bothered. He's Jim Jones. He goes to his doctor and he gets a note saying that he has an enlarged prostate. And in order to reduce the pain and pressure from this prostate, his doctor told him to jump up and down and run in place often when he's having problems with his large prostate. And that's what he was doing when the police officer saw him. Not the other thing. He was just running in place to help his prostate. A week later, an L.A. judge agrees to dismiss the case. Well, now Jim wants the record sealed, right? He doesn't want anybody to ever know this happened. And at first, they're like, no, you're not a minor. Only minors can get their records sealed. But he brings Tim Stone in, his super strong legal counsel, and Tim Stone fights and argues to get these record seals. And somehow, I'm not sure, but the same judge who agreed to dismiss the case also agreed to have the records destroyed. I guess this is what happens when you have friends high up political world who you help win elections I guess you just get off of every charge <laughs> it's really bad wording but anyways the police officer who caught him and arrested him was kind of pissed and he was like no I know what he was doing in front of me he was not jumping up and down he was not running in place I know what he was doing and he like actually filed a complaint to have this whole charge brought back and he was declined so a combination of losing followers the article on the examiner all this legal stuff going on it made jim feel more and more like they needed to go someplace else that san francisco wasn't for them anymore and maybe the united states wasn't for them anymore they had to find a new place to be to live in peace basically he wanted to bring his followers to a place that was so isolated that they could never leave and nobody could ever see them to write stories about them in the paper he leases 3,800 acres of land in Guyana, and he begins construction on Jonestown. He told all his followers back home, right, that, that eventually he was going to bring them to the promised land, that they were going to go someplace that nobody could touch them, nobody could bother them, they could just live and work in peace. And he kept preaching to them this promised land. So he switched a little bit from his older preaching style, where he says, it's all about today, what can I do for you today? Forget about what's going to happen in the future, forget about what happens after you die. I want to help you today, what do you need from me today? He's kind of moved away from that, and he's more in like the, one day things will be good for us. One day, when we're out from under this oppression, when we're out from under people who want to hurt us, then, in the promised land, we'll be good again. He told them all the bad things that had been written about them in that Examiner article, all the bad press and publicity. That was all a conspiracy to destroy what they'd all created because the American government didn't want them to bring socialism back or bring it to America because it was never in America, right? You can't bring something back that was never there. Jim Jones needed Guyana, and Guyana needed Jim Jones and the People's Temple. 
They had just gained their independence from Great Britain, and because of the newly found independence, they didn't have an army. And they'd been in a land battle with Venezuela for some time. And they lost Great Britain's supports. They gained their freedom, which was great, but they also kind of were left with a little bit of an issue. They thought that having a bunch of Americans right on the border there between Venezuela and Guyana would prevent the Venezuelans from attacking and invading. They wouldn't want to get involved with any American citizens and cause the American government to come after them. The People's Temple would essentially be a human shield between two neighboring countries who disliked each other very much. And I'm sure nobody ever told them that that's what they were. That's what their purpose was to Guyana. So Jim sends about a dozen people out to start building Jonestown. But he greatly misunderestimated the time it would take to build this place and also the time that he had left before shit hit the fan in San Francisco. Jonestown wasn't supposed to be completely finished until 10 years after they started building it. And even at that point, it was only supposed to house about 600 people. A couple important key events hastened Jim Jones's departure for Guyana. Grace Stone left the People's Temple in 1976, and she was unable to take her son John Victor Stone with her. Part of this was because when children were born, they were typically taken from their mothers and given to other families because children were raised communally here. So everybody kind of raised everybody's children. It gives a whole new meaning to the words it takes a village because these kids were not ever really kept with their parents. They were given to other people to raise and then kind of everybody just pitched in and helped. So she didn't have a lot of access to John John. Another reason was she was really afraid to take John with her at first because she knew that if she left, her life would be in danger. And she knew if her son was with her that his life might be at risk too. But as soon as she reached safety, she would start the fight to get back John Victor Stone. And she didn't know at the time, but this would be a long and impossible task in the end. A year later, her husband, her estranged husband, Tim, he actually joined her in this fight because he too had defected from People's Temple. Some of the most important defections to happen in this temple was Greystone and Timstone. Him leaving caused a lot of anger and resentment in Jim Jones. With Timstone's help, because he was an excellent lawyer, Grace finally regained custody of their son. But by that time, Jim Jones had already spirited him away to Jonestown in Guyana. John Victor Stone would never leave Jonestown. Joyce Shaw, another temple member, would also defect in 1976. After the whole poison in the wine thing, she didn't really find that funny, and she wasn't really feeling the whole people's temple vibe anymore. She made her plan to go to work, leave directly after work, get right on a bus, and get the hell out of Dodge. When she got to safety where she was going, she called her husband, Bob Houston. She'd left him behind as well as his two daughters, and she begged him to come and meet her. She didn't find out until later that the line she was calling him on was bugged by the People's Temple, and they heard every word she said to him, every word he said to her. Within weeks, Bob Houston would be found mysteriously dead. Apparently, he'd fallen asleep on some railroad tracks and been run over by a train. I don't know how probable that sounds to you, but that's what his cause of death was. Of course, Joyce Shaw believes that his death was the work of the People's Temple, who were punishing her for leaving and making sure never would. She returned to San Francisco and with the help of Bob's father, who was a photographer for the Associated Press, they would get the word out. And 
and Bob's father actually knew Congressman Leo Ryan, which is how he initially got on the scene of Jim Jones in the People's Temple. On August 1st, 1977, an article was written by Marshall Kildruff and Bill Tracy and published in New West Magazine. With the help of 10 previous members, including Grace Stone, the writers pieced together what was really going on behind the scenes of Jim Jones's church. It ended with a very compelling argument of why you should be investigating and looking into Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Right before that article came out, the editors of New West claimed that their offices had been burglarized, or they believed they'd been burglarized. It seemed like somebody had broken in, and the only thing that was disturbed was one of the files on the computers about the People's Temple. There was never any proof that a break-in occurred, and in fact, I think it turned out that the break-in actually was a person who worked there who forgot her keys and crawled through a window and, like, knocked into the computer at the time, and that's what happened, but it didn't really matter because just the suggestion that Jim Jones and his church would break into magazine headquarters to stop an article about them from coming out gave it all the press that it needed. And people were curious to see. The public wanted to know what would be so bad about this article that James Jones and his followers would want to put a stop to it coming out. When this article hit, it was huge. I mean, a lot of politicians who had previously thrown their support behind him kind of shut up, except for Willie Brown, who was still on Team Jones. Add to that, Grace and Tim Stone's very public custody battle, because Tim Stone wasn't backing down, and he was basically talking to anybody who would ask. He was telling everybody everything they wanted to know. Everybody was talking to the press. Everybody was making it as well-known as possible what was going on. So before the article even came out in New West Magazine, because Jim knew it was coming out, he got on a plane with John Victor Stone, and he flew to Guyana and went to Jonestown. And he brought along with him like a thousand people. So Jonestown wasn't even built at this point. Really, they maybe had a couple of houses up, but it took them six months to just build a road through the jungle so they could get cars and supplies and machines in to even do the building. They had to deal with that first. Then they started building the old town. And then all of a sudden, Jim Jones shows up with a thousand people, far more than Jonestown could ever have housed or fed. He brought with him all of his children and Carolyn Layton, his right-hand lady, but he left Marceline back home in San Francisco and he said, you need to run things here. I don't need you in Jonestown. I just want to make sure like things are still okay here. A group in the United States begins to form called the Concerned Relatives Group. This group consisted mostly of former temple members, critics of Jones, Temple and former politicians who didn't either like him anymore or had never liked him to begin with. John Barbagallata, the man who had lost the mayoral race because of Jones's interference, he was one of the biggest, like, outspoken enemies and opponents of Jim Jones and People's Temple. He had a problem with, according to him, the foster kids and the checks being sent to them. So a lot of the people that Jim had initially sent first over to Guyana to start building were these young, strapping, like, teenagers and kids. But a lot of these kids were foster kids who were still getting sent checks to the families who had agreed to take care of them. Now, most of these families were sitting here in the United States, but these kids were doing slave labor over in Guyana, and the checks were going to Jim Jones. So there was a lot of stuff that didn't make sense, a lot of kind of fraudy stuff going on, and Barbara Galato used that as like a reason of why he was interfering and why he was involved. Really, I think he was just pissed that Jones basically lost him the mayoral race, but probably
Probably both. Probably a little bit of both. He's also sending members of the When you have a day tonight. I'll be fine. I'm just finishing my breathing.
then you can send it. So, of course, no actual news is getting out and no actual news is getting in. There was only one way in and out of Jonestown, essentially, and that was Port Ketuma. This port would allow you to either sail or fly to Georgetown, which was the capital of Guyana. And that is where you could, you know, hopefully find somebody to help you. But you'd have to get through the jungle first. And this jungle was so thick, when you were in it, you could see the sky. And there's poisonous snakes and jungle cats and a multitude of other things that are slated to crawl out and kill you when you're in the jungle. So it didn't happen a lot. People didn't go in the jungle. Cabins at Jonestown were overcrowded, obviously. There would be times where there would be like 18 people in one cab and you'd basically be sleeping on top of each other. You couldn't go to the outhouse, the bathroom, without waiting in a line of people to use it. The showers were crude outdoor structures, and you didn't want to open your mouth because it would make you sick, don't drink the water kind of thing. Jones himself had a large, private cabin with an attached bathroom, a refrigerator where he could have his soda pop, and a little fan to keep it cool in there. And he lived there with Carolyn Layton, another woman named Maria, who will become more important later, Chemo, and of course John Victor Jones. He had an actual bed with like sheets and a mattress and a generator lived in a lot better comfort than his fellow people did, which was not the socialist way at all. While he's in Guyana, he's super paranoid. The U.S. government's going to come after him, so he's had to daily shipments of guns come in, and just one or two at a time, but he would use the word Bibles as a code over the CB radio. Like, how many Bibles are you sending us today? You know, just be talking about guns. Like, he thought it would be not weird if a church was talking about ordering Bibles, but definitely weird if a church was talking about ordering guns, which, Jim, you were right, it's weird that a church should be ordering guns. The Social Security Office had stopped sending its checks to elderly residents because they were living in Guyana and not the United States, and that money made up a big chunk of what the People's Temple was bringing in as far as revenue. Now, it was costing $600,000 a month to keep Jonestown running, and he just didn't have it anymore. Well, Jim Jones had it. He had millions of dollars. That place going for a lot longer than you would have thought, but he didn't want to use any of that money, he wanted to use anybody else's money. New arrivals would be checked thoroughly when they arrived in Jonestown, which he thought was really weird. They would go through their luggage and take anything valuable that they could sell, because once again, money was tight. Um, family heirlooms, jewelry, wedding rings, whatever, they would take that, they would sell it. And they would also take their passports, their money, and their IDs. So they were really stuck here. At first, Jim thought that they could sell excess revenue, but there was no excess crops. There wasn't even enough crops to feed the people who lived there. They didn't have any food. It was just too hard to keep up with the demand. So Jim basically opened like a little candy workshop in Jonestown and had people making toys that they would then send to Georgetown to be sold in open air markets. And they were making, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month on this, but it wasn't anywhere near to what they owed or what they were in deficit of. So it wasn't helping that much. The place was rigged with loudspeakers, and sometimes they would be playing music like Earth, Wind, and Fire, something jazzy, but not too crazy. Most of the time, though, it was just Jim ranting and raving through the loudspeaker, elaborating on what he had talked about at a meeting, or just sometimes playing a recording of himself talking because he's drugged up or tired at this point to even get on the loudspeaker and talk. Jim's drug use really, really escalated at this time, and you would see a physical and personality change in him. I can tell just from listening to the tapes that he's completely different than he was at the beginnings. Here's 
why I think Jonestown wasn't what he expected it to be. Before, when he was living in San Francisco, in Indiana, in Ukiah, he could be a man who would come and swoop in, stand up front, look hellish, look put together, and give his sermon, and everybody looked up to him, and it was easier for them to see him as otherworldly. Now, he's living in a jungle, right with these people, like right in the middle of them. He sees them every day, all the time, anytime he steps outside of his cabin, somebody's there. This is driving him crazy, because he's gaining weight, he's getting older, he's all messed up on amphetamines, using more than he ever has before, and he's sweating all the time, and he knows that if people see him this way, they're going to be like, uh, this isn't God, this is like some sweaty tourist visitor that used to wear palm tree shirts, I'm not sure why we're here. And I'm not even sure if people actually felt that way or thought that way, but he just didn't want them to see him as human. In Jonestown, every single meeting was recorded on audio tape. And I have links to these audio tapes. I'll put them in the description box if you'd like to listen to them. Some of them are entertaining. Some of them are heartbreaking. Some of them are hard to hear. Some of them have a quality that's not so good. But if this is a subject you're actually really interested in, I do suggest listening to all of them. But be careful because a lot of stuff in there that if you're sensitive might upset you. I can hear the progression from when he preaches in San Francisco to when he's preaching in Jonestown. He sounds exhausted. He sounds defeated. He sounds like me when I talk to my kids after I've been working all day long and I haven't slept at all and Aiden's just like talking to me about Pokemon or Minecraft and Bella's just like yelling at me that she wants a popsicle and I'm just like, can't do this anymore guys. can't anymore. I'm so sick of it. Like, he just sounds exhausted. He sounds over it. He sounds like these people are a burden to him rather than his loved ones, who he's their father, who'll always be there for them. And this is definitely a parental dynamic, right? That's how you get with your kids sometimes. But these aren't really your kids. They're adults. You're an adult. And the way he would talk to them, I'll play you a little bit, but the way he would talk to them would just be like, I'm so sick of this shit. He literally says this. Like, I'm so sick of it. I can't do this anymore. I hate these meetings. Okay. Give it to her. Give it to her. Give it to her. I'm sick of this shit. He's wrecking. He's not happy. He was becoming depressed. He used to be happy when he had the opportunity to grow and change in the States. He could get more people to come with him. Now he's in the jungle with a bunch of people he's already gotten. And what's the point? I just like bored now. <laughs> that's what I hear and that's what I sense. And I spent a lot of time with this guy over the past couple of weeks. I spent a lot of time listening to these audio tapes. I spent a lot of time reading everything he said and written. And I definitely can tell you that I believe this is exactly what he was feeling. He was depressed. Like, what's next? Is this it? This is it? He didn't want a socialist paradise. He wanted to be important and be somebody that everybody looked up to. He didn't want to be somebody who just worked alongside with his people. They already looked up to him. He didn't have anything else to achieve. He didn't have anybody else to get. He's in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people who are already indebted to him, and now he's like, what's next? So the punishments in Jonestown become meaner and more targeted, more malicious than they were before. There is a box called the box that they would put people in. It's like an isolation chamber that they built for people, and they would just lock people in there. There was a pit in the ground that they dug, and they'd throw people in there if they misbehaved. And there was, of course, the public humiliations that kept going on and just getting worse and worse and worse. And what bothers me the most about these humiliations that happen in Jonestown is I feel like these people who came with him, they're going just as crazy as he is. They actually tend to be part. They're laughing at times at these poor people. There's a woman who's deathly afraid of snakes. 
just take like an anaconda and Jim makes her hold this anaconda and it's like wrapping itself around her and she is literally losing her mind like her voice it sounds like she's gonna lose it she's breaking and all these people are laughing and yelling at her like now you're not gonna do this again are you like apparently this is not the first time they put this snake on her she has this reaction every time and Jim is like you have this reaction every time and nothing ever changes he wants to choke her to death. That's his bed tonight. I'm tired of it. works for this woman. Did this only last six, seven days? If it fed it to her, maybe it might, that might work. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Turn around. These people are getting in on it, right? They're laughing. They're like having a good time. This is the mob mentality. These are not the same good-hearted people they once were. They've warped and become something darker because of Jim Jones. So he would do a lot of these punishments at these night meetings. These night meetings would last for hours, but people would get up at 6 a.m. and they would work all day long. They'd get up at 6 a.m., they'd have breakfast, which was rice. Typically, that's all they ate in Jonestown was rice because they couldn't afford real meat or protein, and he knew that people needed energy because they worked a lot, so rice it was with, like, some watered gravy and some, like, baby pieces. Who even knows what those baby pieces were? After breakfast, he would work, do whatever they were doing until about 6, then they would have dinner, and then they would get to maybe go wash up or something, and then they'd go right to the pavilion. And it's this open-air pavilion where they have all their meetings, and Jones always would six hours a night and then you maybe get to sleep for three hours or four 
wonder why these people went absolutely insane and never questioned what was happening. They were sleep deprived. They were inundated by his voice and his presence and his face almost 24-7. Even when they were sleeping, he played these things over the loudspeaker. This is absolutely torture. This makes people break. This makes people do things they wouldn't normally do. When there weren't punishments happening at these night meetings, the newspaper from the United States was being read aloud. So Jim could let everybody know what a bullet they dodged by leaving the United States when they did. He obviously just made this all up, but he would actually sit up there and read the newspaper and make it up as he went along and make it look like he was reading out of the newspaper. So he would tell people that the KKK had taken over, even though kids were wearing white hoods now. They were putting black people into concentration camps, and it was horrible. You're so lucky that we don't live there anymore. We got away just fine. Jim Jones, when he arrived in Guyana, I expected he would have a regular contact with the prime minister. You don't, like, report leaders to important leaders. But when he didn't have that kind of contact and he was shoved off and the deputy prime minister told him to leave, he was, like, pissed off. He felt disrespected, and he also thought maybe the prime minister's working with the United States against me. Maybe they're in collusion, and that's why he won't speak to me. At one point during an especially tense time in the custody battle of John Victor Stone, the courts had basically ordered that Jim Jones release John Victor back to the custody of his mother and come to the United States to handle this. And he didn't want to, obviously. And then at this point, he found out Tony Reid, the deputy prime minister of Guyana, was in the United States. They were putting two and two together in his head. So he thought in his paranoid head, well, nothing happens without me because Jim Jones is involved. So... He must be in the United States working with them to try to, like, catch me up. So we actually did come to believe that the Guyanese government and the American government would be working together and that they were hiding in the jungle. Like, armed soldiers hiding just outside in the jungle waiting for the right moment to attack and come in. And he told everybody this, right? He said, they're going to come take us. They're going to kidnap our children and kill our children. They're going to take John Victor back to those horrible people, Tim and Grace, and people had started calling John Victor the child god, Jones said. This is what they referred to him as, as the child god. They wanted to protect him just as much as Jim Jones did from being taken. So when Jim Jones told them there was people out there with guns waiting to come and attack them, they were like, okay, what do we do? Jim Jones actually had his son go out into the woods and shoot at him from the woods so that people would think that there was really somebody out there. But he didn't tell anybody with him that his son was shooting at him and it was his son and not an actual enemy. So a couple of his bodyguards actually fired back into the woods. So he could have killed his son because he's an idiot. So one day everybody's doing their normal thing, out working, and there's this huge announcement over the loudspeaker, like, emergency, get back, quick, 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 they're coming, it's happening, and everybody freaks out, and they, like, get back to the pavilions. And that's when Jim Jones and his cronies start handing out guns and basically saying, like, here you go, these guns, you know, when somebody comes out to attack us, you need to shoot them. And these are people that have literally never held guns. These are people that didn't even know there was guns in Jonestown. They were like, where did these guns come from? And he posts these people up an eye on the jungle for when the guerrilla warriors come out of the jungle to attack them and steal all their children and kill them all. He has them doing this for several days, doesn't let them leave their post, doesn't let them sleep, brings them food so they can stay there posted up. While this is happening, Jim Jones is in constant contact with Marcy back in San Francisco, and he's telling Marcy, this is it, we're not going down quiet, I'll kill everybody here before I let them come in and take us, and she's like, calm down, dude, I don't think that Reed is here for that, but I'll find him and, and let him tell you himself. 
he actually had to search the entire United States and track this guy down. He finally did track him down in Indiana, of all places, which is crazy. She had to put him on the phone with Jim so that Tony Reed could tell him, like, really chill out. I mean, you're something completely different. It has nothing to do with you or your custody battle. Nobody is coming to get you. But Jones didn't believe him, right? He didn't believe him. So the day that he is set by court order to return Jen Victor to his mother, Jones ordered... My go-getter routine is simple. Advanced sentencing state syrup with a preset dropper. Push everybody to march through the jungle. Fort Kituma. Miles and miles and miles. And a lot of these people are old. Poor kids. Miles and miles through the jungle to Fort Kituma where he says there's a boat waiting and it's going to take them to Cuba. So they actually start like getting on this boat. But one of the elderly women slips, probably because she's exhausted from her seven-mile trek through the woods. She slips and she breaks her hip. They phone or radio Jones back at Jonestown and let him know what happened. And Jones is like, all right, turn around, march everybody back through the woods, come home. Never said anything about it again. Never was like, sorry, guys, that we were going to get on a boat to Cuba, but then we didn't. Acted like it never happened. Finally, when everybody's back, he still keeps the spirit of urgency going, even though he knows it's kind of okay. The siege lasted for six days. The siege that he said they were being attacked, it lasted for six days. So he finally called it off and said, we won. We won, guys. What did they win? What did they win? Nobody knows, but he just said, we won, and it's over. They would call it the six-day siege, but Jim Jones would call this the very first ever white riot. From there on, Jim basically took any small issue and blew it up into something super dramatic. But life was going on here. Babies were being born. People were having a good time. There were houses being built. Even the Guyanese natives would leave their babies that were just born at the gates of Jonestown because they wanted their children to have the benefits that the Americans had. The Guyanese government would send people in from time to time to check and make sure everything was on the up and up. And these representatives would be led through a carefully staged visit, going only to buildings that had already been staged and set up, talking only to people who had already been coached. And they were fed lavishly, even though there wasn't any food in the temple to be had for anybody else. While they sat and ate their meat and dessert, they were entertained by the Jonestown Kids Choir and the very talented Jonestown Band. However, when the U.S. Embassy visited, they were not treated as well. They were treated as the enemy because that's what Jim Jones told everybody they were. The State Department had been inundated with letters and calls from the concerned relatives who were worried about their family in Jonestown. The visits would become more common in the fall of 1977, but every time the U.S. Embassy visited, the People's Temple would cry religious discrimination and threaten lawsuits for preventing them from practicing their religious beliefs. And eventually, the Guyanese government and the U.S. government kind of decided that this isn't really worth it. Everything seems to be fine, and the more we keep pushing these people and going in and bothering them, the more likely we are to open ourselves up to a lawsuit. But Congressman Leo Ryan was not convinced. He didn't necessarily believe that every single person who lived in Jonestown wanted to be there. He talked extensively with a lot of the previous members, as well as Grace and Kim Stone, and the stories that they told him didn't really jive with what everybody else said was happening in his temple at that time. He wanted to see for himself. That was the kind of person he was. He was kind of like a badass. He needed to see for himself that there was people that needed his help, and if there were people that needed his help, he was going to help them. And Grace and Tim were still fighting so hard for the return of their son. There was a lot of resentment in Tim from everything that had happened. 
he had actually looked up to Jim at one point. He actually believed in him at one point. And when he saw that Jim wasn't the guy that he thought he was, he was just a human, he was pissed. He resented him. Not only did he want his son back, but there was an old and bitter resentment that had built into him once he had seen Jim Jones for who he truly was. Not God, not a prophet, not superhuman, just a mentally ill man who used his power and persuasion to destroy his marriage, his life, sleep with his wife. The defection of Tim Stone and his following legal battles gave Jim Jones a face to put on the unknown enemy he had before been dangling in front of his congregants. Now they had a face. They had somebody that they could hate. He blamed Tim for all the past things they've had to endure. All the punishments, all the really bad protocols and programs that had been enacted had been Tim Stone's fault. And during one of his extended night meetings, he gave everybody a piece of paper and had them write down how they would kill Tim Stone when and if they had the option. With everything going on, Jones began to set the groundwork for the final white night. Now, these people had endured white night after white night. This was always a practice suicide of some kind. I think that I read they went through something like 82 white nights in a year for the final one. 82 in a year. That's several times a week. They were being prepared and almost through the routine of expecting this to happen so that when it did happen it was just part of the routine for them it was just what they did the final white night though was when he planned to end everybody's life so he would up the occurrences of the white nights keeping them on their toes every so often he would sprinkle in the idea of mass suicide see how they reacted to it it started off just as like a general you know would you rather like die or have our kids taken from us wouldn't it be better to just kill ourselves rather than to let them kill us? Wouldn't that be better? So he would start off kind of just generally like that, see how people would respond, see what would happen, what they would say. And then eventually, at one of these white nights, he brought out vats of this dark red liquid, and he told everybody to fill up a cup, that there was poison in the liquid, and within 45 minutes they would be dead. They were coming for them. It was happening. It was happening now. We have to do this. Now, understand there had been a lot of people who were part of this California, you're poisoned, JK, you're not poisoned kind of thing, and they had told people. So a lot of these people drinking the liquid willingly were just assuming it was another practice test. And it was just a test, because after they drank it, Jones proudly proclaimed, this was just a loyalty test you've all passed. Thank you so much. You're amazing. You can take the rest of the day off and relax now as a reward for your loyalty and drinking poison that would have killed you. Everybody who's exhausted and just kind of like mentally upside down right now, just they stare at him blankly and they're like, what just happened? And then the next morning, Jones once again hands out paper. He wants some boys to do essays. He wants some boys to write essays. He hands out all this paper, even though there's no paper for toilet paper. He hands them paper and he says, write what you would have felt and what you would have done if last night had been the last white night. He's literally indoctrinating them at this time. They're just getting them ready the time where he actually pulls this and they're being so twisted in their brains they don't even know what's happening even though this seemed like just another game to jim jones it wasn't a game he took this very seriously he took it as a confirmation that he could in fact pull this off at a mass level he would forever be remembered not as a failure who had been able to pull off a social paradise in the jungle not as a bandit on the run from the u.s government but as a great man who'd made the grandest sacrifice 
by giving his life and the life of his people for his cause. That night, Jim Jones had Larry Schott order a pound of cyanide for the amount of $8.85, and this was enough cyanide to make 1,800 lethal doses. All this time, he's not telling people that his end goal is to have them die. He's telling them that they're in talks with Russia. They're talking to Russia. Russia's going to let them move there. This whole white night thing, it's a last resort. But don't worry, Russia's definitely going to let us in. Now, in fact, they were talking to Russia, but Russia had no interest in letting them in. They, this was a game to Russia. Russia thought they were funny. I mean, there was actually a Russian diplomat who visited the compound and was like, you guys are way more socialist than we even are. We should take note from you. We should learn from you guys how to be socialist. Because how serious they were about it, the Russians kind of took it as a joke. They weren't going to let them in to Russia, because if they were, they would have. They would have told them yes, and they never did. They kept asking, can we go to Russia, can we immigrate there? And they were just like, well, we're still waiting to hear back about it. It was just to put them off. They never plan on letting them live in Russia. Man, weren't these crazy-ass people living in Russia? They were like, you're more communist than we are. Tim Stone is hitting the temple with lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Like, he's not giving up. He's not backing down. He's just going to try to smoke Jim Jones out. Jim Jones can't go back to the U.S. to handle these in person like he's supposed to, or he'll be arrested. But he can't not address them, because not addressing them will also put a warrant out for his arrest. <laughs>
future prospects for People's Temple and Jonestown. And if they were if basically said, with everything that was going on, there's no way that this is going to end well. And the portion of the memo that's most interesting is where she talks about the end, how they will eventually just all have to kill themselves. And she says, we have to do this right. It has to be done properly or nobody's going to go along with it. And it's just so commonplace, the way they're discussing this mass suicide that they're planning, it's like it doesn't even phase them. This woman is literally an insane person. And she egged Jim Jones on from the moment they met. Jim Jones calls Stefan and George him. He's like, get your guys back here. Everybody has to come back here. Stuff's going down. We need you here. And Stefan's like, no, we're having a good time. We've lost a couple of games, and we want to redeem ourselves. We're not coming back. And Jim Jones doesn't like this. He doesn't like this direct deed of disobedience. So he once again tells him to come back, and Stefan just outright refuses to come back. So finally, Jim's like, whatever. I have bigger things to worry about, bigger fish to fry than you not listening to me. I'll handle you later, but make sure you and the rest of the guys don't talk to anybody while you're there. And if you see Congressman Leo... Don't talk to him. On November 14, 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan flies to Georgetown with a whole bunch of other people. He has with him staff members Jackie Spire and James Schultz, nine members of the media, and several defectors and family members of current Temple inhabitants. He arrived at the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown where he's basically told he's on his own, just like the Guyanese government. They don't want to get involved in anything going on at Jonestown. They've already checked it out. They don't think there's anything wrong, and they're afraid at this point of being sued for religious discrimination. They don't want to touch it. Jones's temple lawyers are also in Georgetown at this time, and while they're talking to Congressman Ryan, saying that he's going to be denied entrance at this time and nobody he's with is ever going to be allowed to enter, they're also imploring Jim Jones to let Congressman Ryan in. They don't want this to go south. They know that Ryan basically almost wants to be denied access so that he can go back start a congressional hearing into what's actually going on in Jonestown. But when Jim Jones finds out that he's brought the media, along with several defectors, the worst to him being the Stones, who at this point are his mortal enemies, he just gets pissed and he says nobody's coming in. It was eventually the stern talking to that Marceline gave him, which caused him to change his mind. And when I say stern talking to, she basically ripped him a new one. And everybody who was around heard her yelling at him, and they were really surprised because They'd never heard Marcy yell before. They'd never heard Marcy yell at him before. They'd never heard anybody yell at him before. And she just basically told him off and said, I've been keeping everything together. Your head's up your ass. Please let these people in. Stop making things worse for us. If there's people here who want to leave, let them leave so the rest of us can live in peace. I guess the talk was effective because eventually Jones let Ryan and his entourage into Jonestown. Now, Jackie and Ryan immediately got to interviewing people around the compound, asking them how they liked it, were they happy, and they found for the most part that people gave sincere answers, that everybody seemed to really actually like it there. At night, they had a huge dinner, a big feast with entertainment, everybody's dancing, everybody's singing, having a great time. to a different table and sat there so reporters could interview him. Congressman Ryan gets up and makes a big speech about how everybody seems to be happy here at Jonestown. 
his arms around these people who are saying they want to leave and he's like hey you know it's gonna get better i'm i'm here for you things are gonna get better here don't worry but they're not buying it and they still want to leave the tension's building by the moment here things are getting real serious real quick every time a new person stepped forward and said they wanted to leave too jones just got more and more visibly agitated and then the skies opened up and just poured on everybody and they said it was the biggest storm they'd seen in jonestown since they'd arrived so it's raining really really hard and everybody runs for cover under the pavilion into houses wherever they can find a place to stand and not get soaking wet and as they're in this pavilion with leo ryan a lot of other people come forward and they say they want to leave too now the people who were loyal to jones started yelling at these people calling them traitors saying they were going to die just threatening them and leo ryan starts to get a little uncomfortable and he's like i gotta get out of here i gotta get these people and we have to go now at this point there was 11 people who had defected the night before and left and there was 15 more people who now wanted to leave that morning of there wasn't enough room on the plane for 15 people. Now, Jim's lawyers were actually happy about the amount of defectors. They were like, it's not that many people. Only 15 today and 11 escaped yesterday. They had expected it to be much worse. They literally thought that almost everybody was going to want to leave Jonestown. So when it was only you know, a handful of people, they told Jim, this is a good sign. This isn't bad. This is good for us because all they're going to do is come back with these people and say that only 2% of them wanted to leave and it's going to make us look good but to jim jones every single one of them was a slap in the face he looked at it as setting a bad precedent for everybody else seeing how easy it was to just get up and leave and there was no repercussions he knew it was going to be like the first domino that started his empire toppling down as they were getting ready to board the truck to leave to get to the airstrip a man named al simon ran up with his two children now, Al Simon was like, I want to leave. I want to get out of here, and I want to take my kids with me. But as he's standing by the truck with his two kids, Al's wife runs up, the mother of the children. And she says, you're not taking my kids, and starts pulling on the kids. Leo Ryan sees that this is an issue. He can't take this man and his kids if the wife doesn't want the kids to be taken. But he doesn't feel comfortable leaving him here when he clearly wants to leave. And, and the guy, Al, he didn't feel comfortable leaving his kids, so it was a real predicament. So Leo told everybody, go ahead in the truck. I'm going to stay here, and hopefully I can sort something out with Al and his wife, and we can come to a conclusion. And then he planned to just catch another plane the next morning and get out of there. So the truck pulls away, but as it's pulling away, this short man in a poncho jumps up on the truck and says he wants to leave as well. This was Larry Layton one of Jones's most diehard, serious supporters, his right-hand man. And everybody on that truck who knows Larry is like, no, 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 this guy's bad news. He is loyal to Jones through and through. He's got to go. And everybody starts discussing what's going to happen. What are they going to do? And basically, the people who are running the show say, well, we can't very well kick him off. What if he really actually wants to leave? So they let him stay on the truck, and they start pulling down the road. Now, it's really rainy and muddy, so their truck actually gets stuck in the mud and a tractor has to come and like start pulling them out now while this is all going down congressman ryan is still sitting there dealing with al simon his kids and his wife and as he's trying to deal with this another man runs up and basically goes behind the congressman and tries to kill him he holds a knife to his throat and says you're gonna die fortunately he hesitated and jones's lawyers were able to pull him off and take him away but 
as Congressman Ryan is sitting there, kneeling on the ground, like completely shook, completely scared out of his mind, Jim Jones walks up to him, and instead of saying, are you okay, oh my god, I'm so sorry, he says, does this change everything? So Leo Ryan is crouching in the dust in this hostile, weird town in a foreign country, looking up at a man who's literally bananas. To his credit, he didn't waver. He said it doesn't change everything, but it does change some things. And he demanded that the man who tried to kill him be turned into the police. And you know that the People's Temple likes to handle things internally, so that wasn't typically how they would go about doing something like that. At this point, Leo Ryan's over it. He knows he has to get out of Jonestown immediately because there's people that want him dead, and he's pretty sure that this man who held a knife to his throat did so on the orders of Jim Jones. And he was right. So the truck is still stuck in the mud right up the road. And he basically runs over to this truck and he's like, we got to get out of here. I'm coming with you. We'll sort everything else out later. And unfortunately, he leaves Al Simon and his two children there in Jonestown. They climb on the truck. They finally get it out of the mud. And at about 3 p.m., they head toward the airstrip. Now, this was about a six-mile drive. And with the muddy roads and the bad weather, it would take them about an hour to arrive. And as Jim Jones is watching them drive away, his lawyers say to him, you know, it's not that bad. Like, they didn't take that many people. It's okay. And he kind of stared after the truck, and he said, today they take 20, tomorrow they'll take 60. And he walked away. A few moments later, a truck would leave Jonestown following the congressman's truck with seven to eight armed men on it. Now, at the Georgetown outpost of the People's Temple, Jim Jones gets a call from his father. And his father says, you're going to meet Mr. Frazier, which was code for it's time for revolutionary suicide. We're all going to die. Jim Jones Jr. asks, are you sure there's no other way? And he's like, yeah, there's no other way. Go get everybody, the whole team, bring them back here. We have to do this together. Jim Jones Jr. is like, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. He gets his brother. They talk about it. They're trying to figure out a way they can minimize the damage. They're trying to find a way they can buy some time. So they basically distract the woman who's taking the calls in the radio room because they don't want her to call San Francisco and let everybody know at that office that it's time to kill themselves because basically they're going to make this an orchestrated worldwide event. Everybody at the same time would do this. Stephen told somebody he trusted to call the home office and let them know not to make a move until they heard from him. And they also make sure that the woman who's operating the radio room doesn't leave and doesn't do anything. When Leo Ryan and the truck got to the airstrip, the planes were already there and landed, but there wasn't enough room for everybody on both the planes. Nine people would have to stay behind, and nobody wanted to stay behind, understandably so. So they're all kind of arguing about who is most important to get on the plane and go. None of the defectors obviously want to stay because they already feel like their lives are in danger. The media says they need to get back home because they have deadlines to make and they got to get the story out. And everybody's, like, arguing about who's going on the plane. And as they're arguing, the truck with the armed men on it from Jonestown pulls up and kind of parks at the side of the airstrip and watches them bickering. Now, Larry Layton had sneaked a gun under his poncho. And what he was planning on doing was getting on the plane with everybody. And while they were up there, he was going to shoot the pilot in the head. And they would all die. And he would basically sacrifice himself for that. Jones had told him to do that. But what he saw and discovered, there was two planes take out both planes because he could only be on one he had to figure out a different plan so he wanted to make sure he got on the plane with the defector so he's arguing saying he's a defector he has to go first there's no way around it and the other men who are parked there with their weapons they're basically the backup plan leo ryan never had a chance at this point the men who were sitting and waiting in the truck pulled out their guns and started firing at the people who were standing on the airstrip 
Then Larry Layton pulls out his hidden poncho gun and he starts firing as well. Some people were already on the plane and some people had escaped by running off into the woods when the firing started. But a lot of people got hit. What really bugs me about this whole story is there was a Guyanese plane right on that same runway that had been broken down and they were kind of working on it, trying to get it working again. And they just sat there watched this happen and didn't interfere or do anything at all because they said it was just Americans shooting other Americans and it wasn't their problem. Once the assassins had done their damage and driven away, the survivors emerged from the plane and from the woods to check the damage of what had been done. It became clear that five people were dead, including Congressman Leo Ryan. Jackie Spire was badly injured, maybe mortally. And then the plane that was supposed to carry them to safety, it just flew off leaving the dead and the wounded and the surviving right there on the airstrip where they'd just been shot at. There was not going to be another plane coming until the next day because it was hard enough to land on that airstrip in the light, much less the dark. So all they really had the choice to do was cover the dead bodies, try to keep the wounded alive, and camp out until somebody got help for them. Back at Jonestown, Jim Jones' son Lou gets on the loudspeaker and tells everybody that there's an important meeting they all have to get to the and nobody was really surprised by this. Meetings were common, as we've already talked about, and they assumed Jones would have a lot to say about the congressman's visit, about the defectors, and he would probably be ranting for hours, so it was going to be a long one. As everyone's milling around and getting to the pavilion, Maria Katsaris and Jim Jones are talking about the flavor egg potion that they're going to serve everybody tonight. And he made a face and said, is there any way to make it less bitter? So apparently somebody had already tried this potion what it tasted like and told Jim before they died what it tasted like and she says no there's no way to make it less bitter this is just what it tastes like and he says well at least will it be quick and she says yes it's quick and it's pretty much painless too she's lying it's not painless at all it's horrible cyanide basically robs the body of the ability to absorb oxygen into the bloodstream so you essentially are just suffocated to death and the last couple of minutes are just convulsions foaming at the mouth seizures just horrible horrible stuff so i don't know what she's talking about so jim tells her okay that's great can you just go back with dr shocked and see if you can make this less bitter and then bring everything out so we can give it to people and then he goes off stands at the center of the pavilion and gives this speech about how it's over Larry Layton is going to shoot the pilot in the head, the plane's going to go down, everybody on it's going to die, and they're never going to leave them alone after this. They're going to assume that everybody in the temple had something to do with the deaths of everybody on that plane, and they're going to come after them. It's over. We have to end this now. Wouldn't you rather end this respectfully on our own terms rather than have people come in here with guns, invade us, steal our children, kill us? Because that's what's going to happen. We need to do this now. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. We're all ready to go. If you tell us we have to give our lives now, we're ready. I'm pretty sure all of us is above all with me. Understand, a lot of people at this point thought this was another test. They had been through so many white nights. They'd been through so many revolutionary suicide practice runs. They thought it was just another one of those. They didn't actually think they were going to drink poison this time. So one of the women in the crowd shouts out, what about Russia? You know, they, you've been saying we're going to go to Russia. What about Russia? And he's like, do you think Russia's going to want us after this? They're not going to want us. She responds, well, I believe as long as there's life, there's hope. The Jonestown nurses appear with very...
barrels of syringes that have this poisonous liquid inside. Because Joan says he wants the children to go first. He says he will allow any parent who wants to go with their children to get in line with the kids and they can die together. Calm, let's get calm, let's get calm. Too hot. We had nothing we could do. We can't, we can't separate ourselves from our own people. And while all this is going on, people crying, people screaming, people trying to understand why this is happening, you just hear Jones saying, like, okay, hurry up, you take some. You know, just talking and telling people, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, this is what we need, and then he's like, here, take some more, take some more. He's just urging these people on. This is why I constantly say this is not a suicide, this is a homicide. This man is a mass murderer. Marceline Jones makes one final stand and she screams, you can't do this. Her kids, her normal support system, her reason for living, most of them are not there. Thankfully, they were in Georgetown and they had no plans of coming back. But these two boys, Jim Jones and Stephen especially, they were usually the voice of reason along with Marceline in the compound. They were the ones who always had a level head and people respected them. Had they been there, I wonder if they could have joined Marceline in urging people to reconsider what was happening and to maybe take down their father because somebody should have just grabbed a gun and shot him, honestly. But understand as well, there's armed guards all around the pavilion, so nobody really had a chance. Jim Jones looks at Marceline and he says, listen, your kids are all going to be dead soon or already are. You've got nothing left to live for, so you've got 45 minutes. You better come to terms with it. Mother, 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 please. Mother, please. children are all gone. It's time for the adults to take their turn. And there's still people now, especially after witnessing how the children died, realizing this is serious, this is happening, and people started to panic. A lot of them did go right up and take the poison. A lot of them still believed in him and still believed that he would bring them to a better life after this, but a lot of them did not want to do it. They probably assumed that drinking poison and dying was preferable to being shot in the head by one of the many people who was pointing guns at them, and they knew it was going to be one way or the other. Many of these people were also injected with poison from behind, which signifies to me they didn't want to do it. They were forced. This was a massacre of the highest degree. 
as they all died, Jones kept talking, babbling on about just normal garbage that he babbled on about, and he would interrupt himself every so often to ask somebody to bring more vats of poison or to urge somebody to take more poison. Pretty soon, everybody in the compound was dead, including Jim Jones. But he didn't die from poison. He died from a gunshot wound. We're still not sure today whether he was shot by somebody else or he killed himself. The actual story is that he did kill himself, but I almost wonder if one of the guards maybe was like, I don't want to do this, I don't want to die, and he shot Jim and escaped and just never said anything. Tim and Greystone never got the child back they fought so viciously for. Because six-year-old John Victor Stone was one of the first to be administered poison, along with Carolyn Layton's son, Timo, and so many other innocent children. Days later, rescue planes would fly over Jonestown and never forget the sight they saw. They said it looked like confetti scattered all over the ground. So everybody had different colored t-shirts on, and they were just laying there on the ground, one on top of the other sometimes. They died in each other's arms. They died next to their families, their friends, their loved ones, their children. We have to keep in mind, one-third of Jonestown was small children. So about 300 small children were massacred this day. They were fed poison against their will and brought to an early death because of one man who decided that he wanted to just control everybody's feelings. This is hard for me to say after everything we've just heard and learned, but Jim Jones, had he taken a different path, had he gone a different way, he could have done a lot of good in the world. He could have been another Martin Luther King Jr. He could have been the great man that his mother prophesied he would be. He had the charisma. He had the work ethic. He had the ideas. But they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And because he let power and control get to his head, and I do think that he was mentally ill, I think there was something wrong with him. Because in the end, he had the decision to let the people live or make them die. And he chose to make them die. That was his choice. After everything he had done, all the good, all the bad, that final decision could have been a good one. And even if he had been still remembered as the crazy cult leader, he would not have been remembered as the man who killed over 900 people for no reason. Because that is how he's remembered now. He wanted to be remembered for his great act of revolutionary suicide. I'm pretty sure nobody thinks of what he did as a great act of revolutionary suicide. Some people did escape from Jonestown that day. One of the elderly people was asleep through the whole thing and woke up to a town of dead people. And a lot of people who saw the children being poisoned kind of snuck away into the night, leaving their own children and their own families behind. Larry Layton was the only person prosecuted for any of the events in and around Jonestown. His first trial took place in 1981, and it resulted in an 11-to-1 vote for acquittal on faulty charges of conspiracy to kill Congressman Leo Ryan. The second jury, however, found Larry guilty. Some people think Larry Layton was the fall guy for what happened in Jonestown. He was pretty much the only one left alive that anybody could point at and say, you had a gun in your hand and you shot at people and you're directly responsible for this. A lot of people wonder if Larry should have gone to prison. He went to prison for 18 years for his part in the Jonestown massacre and for his part in Leo Ryan's death. A lot of people think he shouldn't have gone to jail because he was acting on orders or because he was brainwashed or whatever. I sort of disagree because 
goals, you are going to shoot a pilot in the head and take down a plane with everybody on it. No matter how brainwashed you are, no matter how messed up in the head you are, you still have to be accountable for these things. There are a lot of good books and media about this case. If you want to look further into it, I couldn't possibly have covered every single small detail, but this case is insane. There is so much in it. It should be made into a more realistic and a more comprehensive movie. Thank you guys so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I spent a lot of time on this case, and I am relieved now that it's over. I had the closure that you feel when you're finished telling a story. And if you guys have any questions, let me know in the comments. Let me know what you think in the comments. And I will see you next time. Stay kind and stay beautiful. I try.